Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We're a podcast going beyond the badge to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. I'm your co-host, Brent Hinson, and alongside with me, as always, he is the skipper to my Gilligan, Mr. Michael Warren. How you doing, Mike? Buddy, I couldn't be any better day. How are you? You can call me Buddy like the skipper would. <laughs> That's little Buddy. Yeah. Come on, little Buddy. Let's go. I think it's going to be uh, an interesting one today. Very, very interesting topic that I'm looking forward to, uh, to hearing more about. Well, can, can I be honest with you for a second, though? Mm-hmm. You, you ever have those people maybe over to your house, maybe somebody you haven't seen in a while, but some, somebody knows some of your history, and you're just a wee bit nervous about how that, that encounter is going to go. I'm not quite sure I like where this is going. <laughs> yeah, well, you don't have to worry about it, but I, on the other hand, do. Oh. So what, what can you tell us about our guest today with great trepidation? Our guest today spent 22 years as an FBI special agent, recently retired, where he managed and grew the Bureau's UAS, Unmanned Aircraft System Program, and directed both equipment selection, training programs, and operational deployments. He is currently the VP of Public Safety for Skyfire Consulting. A couple of weeks ago, when I contacted him to be a, a guest today on the program, he wanted to know for using both audio and video for today's recording because he said, if we use the video, the presentation changes. I appreciate his honesty. Uh, please join me in welcoming Mr. Mike Rogers to the podcast. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing great, guys. It's great to be here on This Is Your Life, Mike Warren. And I uh, look forward to the discussion that's about to ensue. All right, Mikey, before we get started, I'll be nice if you be nice. How about that? Plan. Roger that. All right. It is good to see you again, my friend. Mikey and I, uh, by way of disclaimer, uh, do have history together. Mike and I worked for the same local agency in Michigan, but he was upward bound and uh, he wasn't there long before uh, he moved on to the FBI. It's always good to see you, Mikey. Let's do it. You remember, you fail upward, Mike, right? <laughs> fail upward. Yeah, sometimes you do. All right. So let, let's talk about your career, man. Uh, how'd you get into law enforcement in the first place? What got you going? I think uh, quite by accident, in a way, to be honest. Uh, I was at the time I was kind of pers- this was back early '90s. I was pursuing uh, some flying careers in different capacities, looking at the military and some things. And uh, and at the time, to be frank, I needed uh, some some money and some benefits while I was pursuing <laughs> such passions, which are expensive. And uh, there was an ad in the newspaper. Now back then, Mike. They used to have newspapers and then you, you go on to the newspaper and you could read there's ads and you answer them and uh, applied and got this job at a regional 911 center in the city of Novi, Michigan. And uh, that was my first law enforcement gig technically was working in the 911 center. The 911 centers uh, back in, in the early 90s are not the same 911 centers that we have today. If you go and look at the ones today, it looks like some type of war room. The one we had, it was like a dungeon. Dungeon with, with, with phones, like actual phones with cords on them and stuff. Yeah, it was crazy. But eventually you, you ended up uh, getting uh, moving up, failing up, as you said, mm-hmm. and you went to the police academy. And, and I should point out, and I'm always a big fan of our veterans, uh, you were a member of the uh, Air National Guard. So thank you for your service. I appreciate that. And same to you, Michael. You're welcome. But you were. But you were. A, a pilot. You were a private pilot. Then you got, uh, you made the decision to move federal yeah. and, and you left the state of Michigan. And where, where did you go from there? Uh, well, I got, I got selected for the FBI, went to their national, obviously their academy. And then my first office assignment was Chicago. So I transferred to Chicago in the beginning of 1999. 
And um, I cast away all dreams of flying professionally at that point and uh, was was on the road to be, a, you know, an investigator. And, and Brent, I got to tell you something, just a quick, quick Mike and Mike story. OK, when Mike was at the FBI Academy, I went to visit him one weekend because he was my buddy. We, we, we spent Saturday, we went uh, into D.C. And I'll be honest with you, the, the Vietnam War Memorial always gets to me. So we went there and then we went to the Holocaust Museum. And that was my first time visiting the Holocaust Museum. And uh, I believe we also went to the National Law Enforcement Officer Memorial Wall. We did. Which was my first time. And then just because we hadn't been affected enough that day, we went and saw Saving Private Ryan. In the same day. Yeah, all, all the, listen, by the time I got back I to the hotel, I was a whimpering little ball on the bed. I was emotionally overloaded. But that's how we said that's how we spent our time. What was your first assignment? With the FBI in Chicago, what was your job? So, my, you know, when you first get there, you're on the new guy squad and they basically throw you around a little bit and put you with all the different programs. And then they have a draft. It's kind of a, it's emotional, significant emotional event. You get drafted or don't get drafted. Uh, I got drafted to an organized crime squad. So back then, this is pre 9-11, of course, the, you know, drugs, war, the war on drugs, uh, violent crime, gangs and organized crime were kind of the focus, public corruption. So in Chicago, uh, they had several organized crime squads, and I was on a squad that was devoted mostly to what they called non-traditional organized crime. So these were emerging groups like Russian organized crime and some Asian organized crime groups. And so we focused on those non-traditional, non-Italian groups. And um, I did that for about three years. Uh, I was in a good group, a lot of young agents on the squad. We felt like we were out kicking some butt, you know, and um, really enjoyed it. And then 9-11 happened, and, you know, the China changed the focus. But you also, I mean, I give you a hard time about, you know, about a bunch of things, but hmm. but you also ended up on a tactical team, if memory serves correct. Yeah, ultimately, a couple of years later, they it's a SWAT in the FBI is actually an auxiliary duty. It's not a primary uh, full-time job, except back at the national level with the hostage rescue team. So in the field offices, they have, a, you know, varying sizes of SWAT teams, but Chicago had a pretty big team. Uh, you try out for it as an agent and you go through a process. And if you make it, um, you get on the team and they put you through the training and, and that's an auxiliary duty, maybe three, four days a month, you're either training or, you know, doing something with them. And then there's an on-call period. So that was a little bit later, like 2005. I did that about five years while I was flying full time. So in the 9-11 period, at post 9-11 period, I transitioned out to aviation. Uh, they needed some pilots there. And so I was flying and doing SWAT. And when I look back at my life right now, I think there's times in your life where you're doing things right. And why did you screw it up? But I, I screwed <laughs> it up. So it was pretty good. We have a lot of listeners that, that are younger than we are, you and mm -hmm. I. And 9-11 uh, profoundly affected those that were in law enforcement at the time. Uh, it changed our, our perspective on the world. It changed our perspective on our jobs. And, and for your agency, it actually changed the primary mission of the right. FBI. What did the FBI, what did it transition over to? Well, I mean, there was there was a lot in the, in the government at the time that wanted to split it uh, and have a separate intelligence agency, similar to what the, the Brits are doing with, you know, you have MI5, MI6 and all that. But Tom Mueller was the director and he fought hard to keep that intact. And he did. And, and basically they said, hey, you're going to have a, a large chunk of your organization is going to be devoted to your traditional, you know, responsibilities, which are criminal and civil rights and, and, and public corruption. And then there's going to be this national security element. And it's important to keep them together, in his opinion, because there was such a shared level of information between the groups and the targets and all that. So uh, that's what they did. And um, my 
the team that I went to was a full-time aviation and surveillance program. And we basically were sent around, we had pretty good equipment in Chicago. We were a bigger office. So we were sent around the country on targets that where they needed support, you know, surveilling them, deciphering who they were, the lone wolf threat, all these things that were happening in that, you know, the mid 2000s, post 9-11. And that really became my focus for a number of years. And so it was a a traveling show, you know, traveling band. And we, uh, we were on the road following following people. Some cases, those targets were very legitimate. In some cases, they, you know, they weren't, but, um, but it was, it was a, it was a pretty good experience for me. And again, being in a bigger office with aviation and SWAT and all those enhanced resources, you know, if there was something going on in the Midwest, it seemed like we always got to play in that. So it was a really good experience for me. And I think the team was, teams are pretty good. Now, now the aviation assets that you're talking about at that time, they were primarily traditional aircraft. Would that be correct? Yeah, there was, there was no uncrewed aircraft out in the field until, you know, very recently in the FBI. So uh, those were all fixed wing or helicopters, and they were equipped typically with some kind of electrical, optical, IR camera system, similar to what you'd see on a standard, you know, law enforcement aircraft or a news aircraft. Really, the focus was to support different teams on the ground with, with what they needed to do. They gave us some advantages. Would it be accurate to say that your role was to provide intelligence to those folks who were on the ground uh, so that they could do what they needed to do, but also do it more safely. Yeah, absolutely. To keep them safe and also to give them distance. You know, uh, a lot of these people that we were dealing with back then were, you know, potentially terrorists. And so you don't want your team up in their face getting compromised. It gave them some space. You know, what, what happened after Chicago? Where'd you end up? Uh, Chicago in 2010, late 2010, I went back to headquarters to a program that had been built back there. It was a new concept and did that for three years. And it was related to what I was doing, aviation surveillance and some other things. And then, you know, kind of the capstone of that program around the Boston bombing was the last big deployment that we went to as a program. Uh, and then about six months after that, they disbanded that program because of a lot of reasons, you know, finances, politics, et cetera. And I went, uh, I was, I was placed essentially into aviation headquarters. And so it was a natural fit made, made sense. I was managing some field assets and things like that. And then along came these drones and, uh, yeah. Uh, so there was another person that had actually, the, the drones were introduced into the bureau you know, several years prior, they were brought in as a very specific tool for a very specific purpose. They were not widely fielded. And, you know, back then, you know, with that national, we talk about the national security side of things, the criminal side of things. When you start introducing higher technology into criminal cases, it ends up in court and then there's a lot of scrutiny on it. So in order to try to, you know, preserve some of their capabilities on the national security side, there's, there's certain things that back then they wouldn't really employ regularly in criminal cases. So those systems were really, they tried to use them for, for national security matters. And then, you know, as time went on, they became much more prevalent. And that's where, when I took over the program, we were still a one, one system kind of program. And the goal was now to put it into the aviation unit, get it out into the field and start using it as a, a more capable tool. So well, when you first got involved, it's more centralized. And then at some point it said, Hey, you know what, we need to expand this, its reach. And also it's a uh, availability to people in the field. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the truth is at headquarters, you know, it's really hard to get that to California quickly if it's based in Virginia. So that there was no doubt that we needed to put these these systems out into the team's hands, train them on the specific thing. But different teams needed different drones. They're, you know, the drones are not, they're not universal. They're, they're tools. There's a, a flathead screwdriver and there's, you know, there's, there's slot screwdrivers and all that other things. So you basically had to pick the right system, the right camera for the teams and then get them trained on it and then get them deployed out into the fields they had them when they needed them. And then it became a great plus to their programs to have that in-house. The, you weren't the only federal agency to be fielding these types of uh of aircraft. No. FBI wasn't what I've been told is that uh, they're used extensively along the border 
for, for national security and also for interdiction of people and, and objects. How would you describe the FBI's initial intent for the drones? What were they originally brought in to do? Well, I'll say the initial phase was cautious would be the word to describe it because of the reputation of drones overseas and the history with drones and, and the concern in the public. So we weren't really looking to do surveillance right away with these things. We were really looking to use these things for SWAT. SWAT became the first fielded program. And it made sense because it was a program that already had warrants associated with it, already had you know a strong intent. It had emergency circumstances in some cases. It was a contained environment that we controlled and it was absolutely immediately helpful, right? If you could put the drone in the building or above the building and, and stop somebody from getting shot or having to stick their face in the room first, then there's no doubt that this is going to be a, a life-saving successful tool. It also separates the, the guns from the bad guys, right? So there's much less opportunity for ADs or use of force issues and all that if we can have contact that way first. So it was a slam dunk, we thought. There was also FAA restrictions back then that were more considerable than they are now. And so a lot of these cases, we felt were going to be easier arguments. And so that's how we started it. So we started as a program one was a tactical SWAT tool and program two was an evidentiary capture tool. And so we've worked you know, years to get to the point now where we're doing other things with it. And I guess that that's the point I'm trying to get across, because there's a lot of people that think that drones just came in and were immediately put into use by law enforcement in America for a variety of tasks. But the truth is they were brought in for a very small niche and you had to work out the kinks and not not only technology kinks, but also the, it's my understanding the FAA was a challenging to work with. Would that be a good word? I, you know, the FAA, I, I, you know, they take a lot of beatdowns, uh, no <laughs> doubt about it. Uh, I, I will say this. You talk about you talk about their responsibility is anything that goes above the ground and flies in the national airspace. They're responsible for the safety of that, uh, both to the to the aircraft and the people in the air and to the people below it. So. That's a huge responsibility. And when you think about, hey, we're going to release thousands and thousands of these things in the air by people who aren't pilots and don't understand airspace, it's pretty daunting. you know. So they were really, really restrictive early on. And we felt they were overly restrictive, but we understood why they were overly restrictive. So we kept, I think our kind of our MO at that point was to very, very softly move forward, prove ourselves, gain their trust and allow ourselves to start, you know, because we were asking for a national COA at the time, which was a basically the ability to fly anywhere in the US, which is unheard of. It was hard to get a COA over a small community, let alone, you know, a state or something. We were asking for the nation. So we tried to really be deliberate in how we employed the drones. We followed the rules to the letter. Sometimes that meant us not even deploying, much to the chagrin of the teams we were supporting. Um, but we eventually broke through where they trusted us and said, hey, we're going to give you this national call. We're going to give you the authorization to operate nationally if you continue to follow the rules. And each period that goes by gave us a successive more capability, more leniency from them and more approvals. And it's to the point where it is now where they can pretty much pull out and operate at will. So as long okay. as you're following the airspace rules. You mentioned two tasks, two, two missions, the, the SWAT mission, but then you also talked about an evidentiary mission. What is that mission about? Well, for us, uh, evidentiary mission was capturing some of these large crime scenes, everything from the, the bridge collapse in Minneapolis to the Pulse nightclub shooting, all these major events uh, that happened that the FBI is responding to. The FBI evidence recovery team, response teams, ERTs, are really, really good, very meticulous. So the ability to take these drones out and Map these large areas, both in terms of how they were when we when they arrived, and then how they are at the conclusion of the investigation. To have a three D model of that is pretty powerful in both terms of your presentations for court or for prosecution, but also for your your collection, your data. For instance, you know you look at the, the shooting in Las Vegas um, out of the Mandalay Bay and. 
the the ability to go back drones flew over that at our request this was before we had a strong evidentiary drone program and to be able to pull out an individual blood stain or a shell casing on the ground from a overhead pass like that to be able to number it and have it geolocated on the on the map was pretty significant the more and more you look at accident reconstruction the speed at which you can do this so as an example if you're going to pull out your ground survey equipment and you're going to do a accident full legitimate accident reconstruction it could take three four hours in some cases right depending on the roadway and that whereas the drone can do the same thing now with centimeter accuracy which is acceptable in 20 minutes and so it, it's improving the speed at which we can capture data, and it's giving it a, a very good and acceptable level of detail and you know georectification. Now, when you're talking about these drones, as someone just a normal everyday person on the street, I have an idea what drones look like because I see them all the time. You know, wherever I'm, I'm out and about, somebody has one flying. How do those drones that we see as normal citizens differ from maybe the earlier versions? Or were they bigger? Did they, were they a different size? Did they have uh, different capabilities? How, how do those differ from what we see as an average consumer? Well, you know, it, it's a good question. When we first started, again, we were using DOD type material. So we were using drones that you wouldn't normally see flying around. Um, they were fixed wing primarily and, and things like that. But as we transitioned to the rotary systems, they have this, they have this almost the same look as what you're flying. They might be a little bit larger to carry a larger camera. They might have a little better battery life, but the systems now have gotten so good. See, one of the issues we had was in 2014, 2015, Parrot and DJI and all these platforms, they were designed to follow kids on skateboards with a camera, a small camera. Quality wasn't really that important. It was just being able to follow the kid and take the cool video. That wasn't really helpful for us when we we're trying to go indoors in a GPS denied environment. So one of the things that has come out of this whole America first, uh, the whole DJI Chinese uh, debacle is that U.S. companies have started to make purpose-built, and NATO countries too, not just the U.S., but they've started to make purpose-built systems. So while the system may look very similar to what you buy, you go out and buy a, a Parrot and Afi off the shelf, there is a version that has an encrypted radio and a little better camera and a better zoom function and all that. So you've got a system that maybe costs 7,000 more than the system you're flying, but from a distance, it looks exactly the same. So they are you're starting to see, I guess, like technical professionalism built into some of these small systems. But honestly, flying overhead, they don't look any different than what you and the kids might be flying in the backyard, you know? If, if I remember in our conversations, uh, one of the earlier limitations for these, these uh, machines was once they did go into a building, you had limited capability of maintaining contact with it. Right. Yeah, you had, well, you had a couple issues. Uh, when the aircraft start going inside, these aircraft are generally designed to fly based on visual or, you know, sensors or uh, GPS and RF signal, you know, from a command and control signal. So once you start going through those types of materials with building materials and metals and, and cement and masonry and all that, you start losing, you lose the GPS. So now you've lost stability. You start getting interference with your onboard sensors because both the darkness, you know, the light situation, and you have magnetometers that keep you balanced, but you lose those because now you've got all this metal interference. You've got rebar on the floor and you've got metal frame doors and all that. So you, you start peeling away the five or six layers of stability that you have outdoors and it makes the aircraft waffle all over. It makes it lose signal. It makes it lose the video and the image quality, et cetera, lose link. And in the early days, those were, those were pretty challenging things to overcome. But again, you've got purpose-built systems like nowadays Brink Lemur and Sky Hero Loki and some other systems that are emerging are designed to fly in GPS denied environments. They have the, the math inside of them to be able to stabilize in different environments. And they have cameras and sensors that can see in low light and et cetera. So they're really being built to solve these problems for public safety, and they're doing a great job of it. 
At Virtual Academy, we're helping our clients build better prepared public safety professionals by offering high-level training provided by engaging national experts. With hundreds of hours of training available instantly, Virtual Academy offers the functionality your officers need so they can train as their schedules permit. Find out how Virtual Academy can meet the needs of your agency today. Visit virtualacademy.com for a complete list of courses, training resources, and more. Virtual Academy, because you deserve more. I appreciate the fact that you brought up public safety and officer safety, because that's what I want to get across to, to those who are listening, is that these platforms, primary job is to make it safer for us to make it safer right. for the people in the public. But eventually, and Mike's been involved in several high profile incidents. And I, and I just want to kind of talk about a couple of them, uh, if I could. Back on September 12th, 2014, I'm not going to use his name. I will simply refer to him as the douchebag. There was a <laughs> douchebag uh, that ended up shooting and killing a, a Pennsylvania state police corporal by the name of Brian Dixon. And during the same event, he ended up seriously wounding Trooper Alex Douglas as they were standing outside of the barracks where they were working. It was, if I understood, it was that shift change, that type thing. And they were talking. He's best described the 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 dirtbag that did this is best described as an extremist, a domestic terrorist would be uh, the best way of describing him. Once this event took place, he took off in the woods. And now there's this manhunt on for somebody who has already killed one, wounded another. So incredibly dangerous person. And the terrain was incredibly dangerous and a lot heavily wooded. The, The drones end up getting called in. What was the role of the drone during that particular event? Yeah, well, that's that's one of the areas where the FBI can can really shine and it, it can bring, you know, a lot of resources in those kinds of events in terms of volume and technical capabilities. So in that case, we were asked to, to go up there and support some of the teams that were out doing this tracking because the guy was highly, you know, very dangerous. He was in his, basically his home turf, so to speak. The train was horrible, hard to even walk and let alone at night with NVGs and that. So our role initially was to go up and really support those teams' movements, particularly in the dark. And, you know, we were able to basically, we had some long endurance IR equipped um, systems at the time that we could put up for you know a pretty good period of time and stay in support of those teams. Uh, examples specifically are you know you've got a team that's moving towards a structure and they're going to have to clear an area. We can stay ahead of them on the structure. We can see movement or lights or heat in the structure. We can clear open spaces ahead of them for bad guys, for signs of recent activity, for recent heat, for tracks, all those kinds of things to give them some intel as they're approaching the structure. And then as they approach the structure, they can determine what they want us to do. They want us to hold on upper levels of the structure. They want us to clear the roof. They want us to move to some other position to cover their back, you know, if they have an open area behind them. So it really just gives them that bird's eye perspective, which is really helpful, uh, especially with the thermal. It's limited with canopy. So if it's a really thick canopy that time of year, and it was in this case, there's areas we just aren't effective, you know, so we're going to stick to the open areas, the waterways, in the open fields or the structures. <laughs> funny but not funny side note to that on that particular search. Uh, between the, the UAS systems there and the manned aircraft that were there, the crewed aircraft, we did have a situation where the teams were approaching a structure and it appeared there was a guy standing up looking into the window of one of these structures. And as soon as the team got close, he kind of took off into the woods. So we, we worked the team, the air, air unit worked the team onto that 
guy. It ended up being a black bear. <laughs> so, the team let us know quickly. It's a bear. You know, it was, uh, Save yourselves. Yeah, he was standing on his hind legs looking in a window. He's just looking for a little, you know, a little, little strawberry pie or something. But uh, it was kind of you know humorous moment in an otherwise unhumorous event. But um, yeah, so we were able to just basically support that. We were supporting their movements, staying ahead of them, staying behind them, just just doing what we could do to help them. We did have that system. Also had some communication capability where we could. Nowadays we have situation where in a software that can show where the drone is, where the people are, and and, and perspectives and push the video. And so that drone was able to give communication because of, uh, you know, it's height in the mountainous terrain. It can get above all that and provide a, a direct link for communications to keep that system capable of working. So there was a couple advantages to it there. To your point earlier, Brent, the systems get better every year, every six months almost. And so there now nowadays there's even better tools than we had back then to be able to do that. Well, and do you see, I know you're talking somewhat on a federal level, but do you see this going to a state level and a local level where these agencies are incorporating this type of technology in their everyday activities? Yeah. I mean, that's basically why we exist. We exist to try to help some of these agencies go from, from A to Z quicker and save them the three or four years of stumbling like we had. So the even my local jurisdiction here, the sheriff's department in my local jurisdiction has a drone program. I, I go out and work with them you know, and, and stay in contact with them quite a bit. They're using it for searches, water searches. They're using it for reconstruction now. They're using it for Project Lifesaver, which is a great program for people who have you know Alzheimer's or people who have autistic children who are, are uh, constant runaways. You can get a bracelet and and typically, the agencies have to use this product, this antenna, and walk around and, and try to find them on the ground. Well, these guys here are working on putting that into a drone so they can put this up and get a three, four mile range and be able to zero right into that target quickly and get on it. So, you know, the uses are endless. We're even talking about medical delivery. It, it isn't just law enforcement. The ability to take a package like a AED or insulin or Narcan and be able to launch it off an EMS hut or a fire station or a remote area and put it out into a, an area where you can't get quickly by road and have it somewhere in a minute and a half, two minutes is an extraordinary use of the drone. So it isn't, you know, it's not just a surveillance tool. It's really, there's multiple uses for these things in public safety. And, I, and we are definitely starting to see that expand the use of those expand finally. And do you have to have like is someone specialized in that department that that's their job or is, can you train multiple people on this? Well, we, what we like to do is let's select uh, a couple people in each program that's going to use it. Well, the SWAT team, let's let's train four operators. Uh, if you're going to have it launching for a medical thing, let's train four or five operators. Let's train the dispatchers to, to take the video and be able to communicate what they're seeing and, and operate from the remote command post. So we're training a lot of people. Really what we do is we train the trainers. We train them initially on the, on the hardware, the software, the selection. We help set the program up. We set up the, you know, what, what is going to be qualifications, what are going to be the currencies, all those things. Help them set the whole program up. That, you know, we train them and they train themselves. And then you see, it's really when you start getting a lot of people trained in an organization that you start really seeing expansion inside the organization. Well, I do have a question for you. And I'm not, I'm not saying this to be funny, but there are many people out there that have concerns over the use of these type platforms. So I'd just like to point out that, that all those possibilities you talked about right there for the use of these, uh, of these systems, uh, there was not one mention of sniper attack or the, the release of rockets or missiles from the drones. <laughs> no. It's funny to me, but there are people out there that have legitimate, what they in their mind, legitimate concerns that these are going to be used as offensive weapons. And that's not what they're used for on this side of things. No, that's accurate, Mike. But you I mean, turn on the TV and what's going on in Ukraine right now. They're taking right. these small drones. They're putting, uh, you know, 40 millimeter shells on them and dropping them very accurately. So can they be utilized variously? Absolutely. So can the shotgun and an assault rifle and a, and a car? But I think you're right. I mean, the, the, the greatest success we've seen with these systems thus far is, is protecting 
is protecting more so than it is, you know, hurting, protecting officers, protecting firefighters, protecting public, even in some circumstances over, you know, so that again, there's that limited contact when there needs to be, you know, you can use it for infrastructure, which is a great use for it. Go, go find all your critical infrastructure in a community and map it out in 3D, all your schools. So now that you can, instead of pulling up a Google map that has a, a two dimensional view of your school, pull it up in a three-dimensional view with all your doors and windows on it marked, you know, just for planning purposes. There's so many great uses well beyond surveillance or beyond the idea of arming these things. But the truth is you could, and these could be armed. I understand the concerns about that as a community. I understand the biggest concern I see in the communities is voyeurism, essentially. It's watching what I'm doing, <laughs> seeing in my backyard, me getting in trouble because I'm growing my something in the backyard or whatever it is. And really it's up to the, it's up to the communities to really engage upfront on that. Uh, Brookhaven, Georgia is a great example. It has a DFR, Drone as a First Responder Program. It has a, what I call a patrol program as well. And it has engaged extensively. It releases all of its where it flew, when it flew. Uh, it releases video frequently. And it tells the community, listen, we don't have the capacity to be filming everything, we've, <laughs> every house we fly <laughs> over. We're flying from A to B. We're going to get there. We're going to film it. We're going to film from start to finish. And all that information is being put into evidence. And, you know, there's no, they're scrubbing it every 180 days for, you know, personal information, et cetera. And, they're doing a really, really good job of, of maintaining that level that the public expects of us to use it professionally. Going back to the, the Pennsylvania manhunt, uh, the drone, you already mentioned some of the, the limitations it has. If you've got a thick canopy of the, the, the trees are thick and you can't see the ground, then obviously it's not as effective as right. it is an open field. But doing the research for this right here, one of the things I found was the type of terrain that they were searching in. It just about negated the effectiveness of dogs which is mm -hmm. another tool that is used to track people. So th this isn't meant to, to replace other tools. It's meant to supplement and enhance the tools that are being used by first responders. Would that be accurate? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the thing in, in, in those manhunts, again, the dogs were a huge feature. There's even now there's circumstances now where you can put a sensor on the dog, a tracker on the dog, and you can follow the dog with the drone. So as you've got a visual observer 100 feet above the dog following him, protecting the dog, and also letting people know where the dog's at, you know, instead of trying to communicate that constantly. Where it's going next is the, the foliage has always been a problem. Foliage has been a problem for crewed aircraft. I, I did almost 6,000 hours flying crewed missions and foliage is always devastating to us. But that's the cool thing about the drones is now that we have these GPS denied confined space systems, you can fly under canopy now. So there's another advantage that, hey, I've got a trail that I got to go down that's pitch black and that has a, a dude with a, a sniper rifle on the other end of it. Well, I'm going to send the drone down first with an, with an IR on it. And these systems are getting smart enough. You know, Skydio makes a really, really good system that can do AI avoidance. It can avoid obstacles on its own. Other drones are starting to follow. DJI has some obstacle avoidance that's pretty effective. But you start to see, again, these purpose-built systems that are figuring out these problems. Uh, additionally, if you, get, if you have a payload capacity of two or three pounds or four pounds on a drone now, a lot of these sensors are being micro-sized enough to be able to fly on the drone as a second payload. So... Think about the manhunt. You got you got the ability to put a camera on there and do the mission we've been doing, but you've also got the ability to put a cellular device on there that can track a person's cell phone. If if you got a lost hiker, you got a lost kid, you can plug in what you need to plug in on their specific data and go go help find them. See that cellular emission out in the middle of this swampland. And so there's just you know because you're at such a low altitude now, and that that's a that's an effective alternative. So I think that's you know that's where it's all going to go. I think the combination of putting the second sensor on there, uh, the ability to use artificial intelligence in what we're seeing and in, in scrubbing the video and seeing things like color and movement and all that, aiding the human eye, that kind of where it's headed. Just to wrap up the uh, the incident up in Pennsylvania, the initial shooting took place on September 12th, and it, it wasn't concluded 
until October 30th. The length of some of these events also require these types of tools because human beings get tired. Right. Everybody's agency has calls to handle. We were able to catch that guy and he wasn't caught by, by a drone. He was caught because if I remember correctly, a citizen happened to see him and called the cops and, and they were able to come in and get him. But then there was another incident that you were involved in. And this one, it gets to me because... July 18th, 2018, a young lady by the name of Molly Tibbetts uh, went out for a jog and she didn't come back. And this was in Brooklyn, Iowa. At at some point, drones were called in to assist with this investigation as well. Yeah, at this point, those are kind of drop everything in, in all hands, those kinds of cases. That actually was not a uh, FBI case. It was a, uh, the state of Iowa was running that case because at the time there was not an interstate, you know, there's there wasn't a nexus or kidnapping. But we definitely, the case, I mean, that case happened at a time when they were fortunate to have several people working in our organization in Iowa who were um, really, really good at their at their craft from the management teams there and from some of the agents that were working there. So we brought in all the resources we could bring into that. We brought in a dog that can detect cellular components. We brought in the drones. We brought in everything that we felt could aid that investigation you know, it's the right thing to do. As you said, you know, that case was very near and dear to me. I'm a graduate of University of Iowa. You know, I had a, I had a daughter the same age, basically. And uh, those are heartbreaking events. So we, we bought what we could. That was a massive search in terms of area. And it was a very difficult search because it was in the middle of summer in Iowa. And if you're familiar, these corn stalks are about eight, 10 feet at that point. And so you have got tens of thousands of acre upon acre of almost impossible to search areas like that. So having the aerial perspective was a benefit. It, in the end, you know, it was good old fashioned surveillance and cameras and police work and investigations that ultimately found the car, found the target and got them to confess and lead to the body. But ultimately the search, which was extensive, six square miles by, you know, six miles by six miles in that kind of terrain was aided by the ability to put aircraft and drones up and be able to rule out areas and cover waterways and, and do the things that we needed to do to try to support the teams. One of the things that I wanted to ask the question about is you hear a lot about DNA and, and, and evidence and trying to get to uh, solve a case and people say, well, just, just get DNA. You'll, you'll solve the case. Well, it doesn't always work that way for some of these smaller agencies. And I, I want to draw a comparison to drones. How how viable is it for these smaller places to have this type of access, to have these these drone operators? And is it do you see it becoming more prevalent? Yeah, I actually think I think this is one of the areas where drones kind of are equalizers. You know, it's not that expensive to start a drone program. You don't have to you don't have to invest, you know, hundred thousand dollars in these programs. Certainly don't have to invest the kind of money you would in a manned uh, or I should say crewed aircraft program. So it it puts an aviation perspective into every single department. And be honest with you, a lot of the departments we're training are small fire departments, small sheriff's officers, small police departments that have, you know, 20, 30 people and they just want to be able to get that perspective. So in the case in Iowa, we were we were using some pretty unsophisticated drones at that point. And we use them for following targets that came up. We use them for covering huge areas. We use them for finding searchers who are lost in, in massive, you know, vegetative areas. Uh, we searched areas under bridges and things that were very difficult to see. Uh, we took video imagery of areas that were around the crime scene. 
Um, and in some cases, I think one of the things we were able to do probably better than anything was be able to see tracks and determine how tracks differentiated or moved different places. And in one of the circumstances, very near where she was abducted, we found tracks that diverged from all the other agricultural tracks in that area. And it, we found it, it was apparent very quickly within a couple minutes of us getting on station there. We sent teams in to follow it on foot and they, they went right to a fresh grave. And they, they said, what are the chances? It was a six by some grave. And so um, it turns out the farmer who owned that property was called out and he said no it's a calf i buried there the same day she was abducted and we thought "Mm, that's you know enough to maybe make us take a look uh and they did dig up the grave and it was a calf as he said it was it was not the abducted person but that's a perspective that any department can get for a couple thousand dollars and it's a huge time saver it gives you things there was another circumstance in that search where we found a pile of bones from some cows that had been dumped and decayed over time that we ground people had walked past at least four or five times that day and within 10 feet never saw it because it was deep in some high vegetation. And so there's just um, there's just such an advantage to having that perspective. And it's very inexpensive. You know, this is, I've, like I said, I've trained fire, volunteer fire departments that have 15, 20 volunteer firefighters. It's not a huge investment. And, and I think it's giving everybody an opportunity to get that kind of perspective now. And there's one thing that, that I just want to address here. It provides first responders with peace of mind that I've done everything I possibly can do in this case. In the Iowa case, it was old-fashioned police work that led to the discovery of the body. But from the perspective of the person charged with the investigation, I've used every tool to try and bring this to a conclusion. Right. And I think that's important for uh, officer wellness. And to be honest, I think it's probably healthy for, for the family to know that, man, these folks are doing everything they possibly can. Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, I, I mean, we've, I've been sent places before with, with crude aircraft just to make the point that we're doing everything we can, even though we, we knew it wasn't going to be that effective. I don't like that idea, to be honest, for, based on cost and resources. But you're absolutely right. When you, when you take everything you've got, and you put it out there and and you pull that team together, it does make a difference. It makes a difference in energy, like the energy of the ground searchers changed when we started putting up new systems and brought the dog in and do this. And it made believers out of people in those tools. And most importantly, from a law enforcement perspective, aside from the cat, you know, the finding of the target or whatever, it really, you get better every time you do it. So the next time those guys on that team, those, those uh, agents on that team go out and, and try to support something like that, they're going to be better. They're going to have a better camera. They're going to have a better process to do it. That matters to me. You know, I want, I want my local department to be as, as capable as they can be, and, it, and, and they're moving in the right direction. Are you using thermal technology on these cameras, or what does the outlook look like? Yeah, there's a, almost every system now that these agencies are using have, have EO or electrical optical day cameras and then uh, have uh, infrared IR cameras. They're usable day, night. Um, the IR cameras can give you information, obviously, at night, which is very valuable, but also in the daytime. You know, if you have a car that was sitting in a parking lot and just left, you're still going to get that residual heat signature. You can see into wood lines where it's dark and shadowed or into a garage using the thermal because you're seeing heat as opposed to light. So there's a lot of advantages to those systems. And, and almost every system now we're seeing has that now in the public safety realm. For me, it really, it, that is no longer an obstacle. I think the next challenge is getting that second sensor and getting the ability to have software that can and help the pilot or help the crew. Software does exist. It's out there. DOD has used it. Um, very few public safety agencies are using it. I hope that that's kind of the next big bridge we cross where we can put this image out, put this video out. Instead of the person who's flying it and already challenged and, and distracted, trying to be the person who's also hawking all the video and trying to find the, find the, the information in the video, to be able to almost real-time run it through this AI software and pull out, this is movement, unnatural movement here, this is the color red we've been looking for here, and be able to identify quickly those things in the video where we can send the ground troops and, and get them over there to take a quick look. 
you're ruling out things quickly, I guess. You mentioned it a couple times already, and, and this is how I want to spend the last part of the episode if we could. What exactly is the drone as first responder? What is that whole concept? Yeah, DFR um, is a concept where you are, are launching a drone from a, a fixed site immediately upon the, a 911 call. And the first agency in the U.S. to really get that up and running was Chula Vista Police Department in, in Southern California. Since that, I think there's been about 11 or 12 now agencies that have got the approval to start doing that. Brookhaven, I mentioned, is one of the recent ones that we worked on. So we worked on a lot of the FAA parts and the training parts of that. Um, we don't do hardware. But the, the concept is basically you have someone on the rooftop right now and get the 911 call comes in. There's a determination, is that something that the drone could be supporting? If it is, you launch it immediately and you launch it direct line of sight to the, to the location. In the case of Brookhaven and Chula Vista, they both are also working with or in trying to implement live 911, where they will also have the person on the rooftop listening to the 911 calls live and launching before it's even entered in the computer. Because as you know, Mike, <laughs> in our storied history, sometimes it takes three or four minutes just to get all the information out and get it get it going. So in the average response time now in Chula Vista for this program, it's some it's under two minutes, which is which is remarkable. So that means you're putting a camera over your target over your location within 90 seconds or 100 seconds of a 911 call. And what does that give you? Well, it gives you a ton. It gives you situational awareness. It gives you, uh, in some cases, it, it tells you this it's not what people are calling to say it is. In some cases, you're watching someone come out of an armed robbery that just happened and following the target as opposed to staying on the building because the officers responding are four or five miles away. And now you're following the target and directing them to the target. It also means you get an open door. A first officer arrives on a, you know, let's say a commercial building and the officer is holding a corner. Well, you put the drone on the other corner and hold that until the second officer arrives. So it gives you real data that's being beamed directly to either the officers arriving or the command center. And it gives you information with which to start really making decisions or following people or following cars or calling the officers off. If you get a report of a large disturbance and, you know, the drone gets overhead and there's two people arguing over a shrubbery in their driveway, well, we can cancel the other three units potentially here. So there's there's uh, there's a lot of data starting to come out. The problem has always been it's a great concept. It's I'd like to see it expand from public safety, fire or police agencies to fire for thermal and to EMS for medical. So that a community like a county or a citywide community can have this capability in their community and be pushing medicine, thermal cameras, and, and these sensors uh, wherever they need them, when they need them. But the problem has always been, how do you justify a negative? How do you justify that the drone was earned its pay today when all you're doing is ruling things out? You're, you know, you, your SWAT team goes in and nobody got shot today. It's hard to justify that. But you're starting to see really good data come out now out of out of Chula Vista and some other places in, in um, Texas and California and, and Georgia. And I think when the data starts really coming out, people are going to be shocked at how effective these things are, both as a response tool and potentially even as a deterrent in some cases. It's a, it's a neat concept. We've, we've been involved in eight of the 10 first programs in terms of the FAA and, and the training parts. And we really consider that kind of our cornerstone of our business going forward. As you and I were talking about this, because you know, we talked about it quite a bit recently, I, I look at things from the officer safety side. You know, I mean, I, I love the men and women who do this job on a daily basis. And when you go back and you look at the officer safety data from the last few years, there has been a confirmed uptick in the number of ambushes of responding law enforcement. Uh, we had one recently here in the past few weeks uh, in my area where an officer uh, was dispatched on a potential person with a weapon. And the officers get there and, and before they can even do anything, the shots are being fired and one officer ended up losing his life. 
And if we can get something up there ahead of those officers and say, hey, listen, yeah, there is somebody here with a gun and this is where he's at. I think it makes our first responders that much more safe and that's worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's absolutely worth it. And I I think, you know, the only the only question really remains, it's not there's no question of whether or not that's a valuable tool. There's there's no doubt it is. And it's a a very low risk tool, to be honest. The question is, at what pace can we continue? Can an agency pay to do it? You know, I mean, can they can can they do it for eight hours a day? Can they do it 24 seven? What kind of staffing does that need? Eventually, the FAA situation and the technology situation will get to a point where it launches out of a box. It doesn't have to be someone on the roof. It can fly where it needs to fly in the city based on its own sensors on board. Um, and then all you're really doing is you're, you're having someone manage the the camera, the sensor, like where is it looking? And that could be done in a dispatch or remote kind of scenario, which uh, which is pretty easy to do. But right now, the FA requires a person in the loop on top. So there's a, you have the manpower issue and you are limited usually to two to three miles somewhere in that ballpark off of a center point. So there's some limitations to it now that will go away over the next year or two. But the point I make is get in the business, get this thing up and running, because when it does open up, you're going to be in a position to expand as opposed to start from scratch. And I just think it's a, I think it's a great program. I'm excited actually as mo- as much about the concept of moving medical supplies and defibrillators and things uh, as I am just, you know, the, the law enforcement function. There's so many great functions that can come out of that now, having a, a essentially a, a regionalized DFR program. It, it's, it's kind of humorous to me sometimes how people get all excited about Amazon and UPS and them investigating the feasibility of having drones deliver packages. And that excites them. But when we start talking about utilizing them to make the public safer and to make our first responders safer, people get apprehensive. <laughs> yeah. Literally, it's it's the same concept. It just one's being used for pleasure and one's being used for safety. But right. if, if somebody were looking to get more information on starting up a drone program or, or just to, hey, listen, I, I have interest in doing this, but I, I need help in developing a presentation to present to my uh, administration or present to my city council. How do they get a hold of you to help out with that? Well, the uh, the company Skyfire Consulting, and we have uh, they can go online to skyfireconsulting.com as a first step and see all of the you know what, what we offer, who we are, how to contact us. Uh, my personal information, I can post it. I guess I, I don't yeah, we, we can post it in the show notes for you there. All right, then we'll we'll post that. I think call me anytime. We don't. As we're a consulting firm first, we don't charge to have a discussion. We don't charge to talk. We only charge if we deliver a product to you. So we that's a big part of what we do is talking to agencies, talking to we've, we've actually appeared on, you know, on Zoom calls with city councils before talking about this. Even if it's something you're interested in, if you want to know what's the cost of this thing, what does it really take? How much time does it take? We can walk through all that. Uh, again, we we implement DFR programs and we do the training. We do not sell the hardware or software. So there are several drones out there. There are several software versions out there. We can discuss the cost and the pluses and minuses of all those. We'd be glad to do that and let you guys make a decision. Even programs that have drones now, one or two drones, they don't know really how to use them. You can convert that over to a DFR program or continue doing what you're doing with no change in your hardware you know, you just need to bring all these other pieces together, the VB loss, the COAs to, with the FAA, uh, the training part and the how we're going to operate SOP part. So glad to. That's what I do. This is my life now, Mike. I, re, I retired and now I go around and I, I try to help people again, not go through all the pain that we went through. So glad to help anybody. Anybody wants to call anytime. Be, be glad to give them advice. And, and that's perhaps the, the biggest value is that you don't have to make the same mistakes that I did. I can grease those skids for you right there. Yes. Mike, Mikey, I sure appreciate you being on with us today. 
as a guy with a law enforcement background, I look at this right here and I think this right here is truly something that can go to reduce the number of officer injuries, officer deaths that we have in this country on a yearly basis. Yeah, super interesting, and you can tell that I'm definitely engaged in finding out more about it because it sounds like it's uh, definitely a, a beneficial tool for those agencies to to put forth and, uh, and 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 help them out. The technology is available. I think it's foolish not to at least investigate feasibility of using it. I hope that my my local police department, I hope that they're looking at it because I think it's a valuable tool that's going to make those officers safer. And if they're safer, that makes me safer. So I'm all for it. Yeah. And like you said, Mike, we'll put all of Mike's information in the show notes section. We'll put uh, links to uh, Skyfire and you can get some more information if you want to find out more. And you can find that, as always, at Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. Com. We'll have all of uh, Mike's information and you guys can get some more details there. And while you're at our website, you can always connect with us. We have all our social media accounts and we have a, a spot where you can email the show if you'd like to share your story with us. Our email address between the lines at virtualacademy.com. And again, the uh, the website is uh, between the lines of virtualacademy.com. Super interesting topic today. Yeah. Thanks for doing this with me today, Mikey. Thanks again for being on. Enjoy retirement, brother. Mike, appreciate you having me. Great talking to you always. You're a great American. We'll see you guys. 